When you look at a Buddha image, whether it's a statue or a picture, it's very common that the Buddha will be sitting or standing on a lotus. Maybe a circle of lotus petals and leaves. You'll find this image all over the world in every Buddhist country or Buddhist temple quite common. The lotus symbolizes enlightenment, the enlightened mind, free from suffering. And the Buddha pointed out that the lotus lives in the ponds and swamps and arises out of the mud. So it actually comes forth from that which is you might say dirty, muddy, grows up, blooms and opens. Just like the enlightened mind, the mind that is free from suffering, the mind of Nibbana, comes out of Kilesa, Avicca, Dunha, Upadana, ignorance, craving, attachment. is the starting point for our practice. But through the practice of the Eightfold Path, we turn that into something uh, pure, radiant, beautiful, the enlightened, peaceful mind. This is an important point to remember because when you're starting with ignorance, craving and an attachment, it's not always easy to deal with, not nice to look at, to be with, to think about or experience. And yet we have to because that's the beginning of the path establishing some wisdom through hearing the Dhamma and reflecting on it and then looking at the cause of suffering and recognizing it and recognizing suffering for what it is. Dukkha is Dukkha. The cause of Dukkha, Samudaya, recognizing that and then practicing and developing the path. So everybody has the experience and it's difficult try to meditate, your mind throws up many defilements straight away. It's difficult, not necessarily peaceful. Mind can be disturbed by many things. But this is just the beginning of the practice. This is the mud. 
that we have to work through. And of course, when you're in mud, say in a muddy pond, you have to be careful. You can slip over, you can get stuck, get dirty, and so on. So you have to be willing to face that, you know, to be with some difficulty, the difficulty of our own ignorance, craving, attachment and its effects. To be willing to be with that, work with that, look at it, and then to go against that, and go against kilesa. That's difficult because it means changing habits, ways of behavior in the mind and how it's expressed through speech and action. Another difficulty is that we're not even absolutely sure where we're going in the practice because, as the Buddha pointed out, Nibbana, liberation, it's not something you can describe in words. He would generally talk about it as what it is not. It's not suffering. It's not birth, age, old age sickness and death it's not suffering it's not attachment and so on but what it is is hard to say and if we haven't experienced it yet well then it can lead to doubt or confusion exactly where we're going so we have to rely on Kalyanamitta our teachers those Dhamma practitioners who've practiced before us and had some realization and can, through their own example and through their teaching, give us guidance. And then we also have to rely on our own practice in the end and learn through our own experience until we gain more confidence in the practice, in the path of practice, that it does liberate the mind from suffering. And that takes time. Even if people do try to describe realization and insight and nibbana to us, or through the scriptures, or through people's words, it's still hard to fathom it, work it out because it's not necessarily something that's logical or that you can compare easily to the world and the things of this world because by its nature it's beyond the world, transcendent we say lokutara dhamma goes beyond the conditioned world they say it's like the tortoise coming to the pond going in and meeting the fish in the pond and starts telling them about what it's like on dry land and the fish just never been on dry land or have any kind of perception or understanding what dry land might be like 
So everything the tortoise says is just strange, weird, difficult to believe, difficult to even comprehend. I ask him many questions, all of them missing the point and going in the wrong direction because they've got nothing to base their questions on, no information or prior knowledge. All they can really say is, well, does it have water there? He says, no, it's dry land, it's hard, it's firm. So even more remote from what they're used to, it doesn't even seem attractive if there's no water there, what's the point of going there? So they don't even want to follow the tortoise to the dry land to find out about it. It just doesn't seem worth it. And Nibbana seems like that, the end of self, the end of attachment, the end of sensuality, the end of birth, old age, sickness and death. And it seems some good things there, but also it can seem pretty far away, remote, because it means the abandoning and letting go of everything that we're used to ways of thinking and perceiving, experiencing the world, knowing the world. And just when you try and describe it, it sort of doesn't sound so attractive necessarily. It does maybe when we have extreme suffering, or like the end of this suffering. But maybe on a more normal, in a more normal state of mind, it might just sound so remote unreal, that it's not even worth contemplating for many people, certainly not making any effort to move towards it. So that's another problem, another difficulty. But we have no choice but to use our minds to understand a bit more. We listen, we turn, listen to the Dhamma, read and listen. Then we have to internalize that, what we've heard and start comparing our own experience, looking, learning. So we need the tools to do that. So this is the eightfold path. We're developing the restraint and the composure of sila actually quieten our behavior down enough so that we've got enough mental energy and enough peace of mind that we can start looking more closely, more deeply at our experience. And if you can think back to when you maybe didn't keep much sealer or have much interest in self-discipline, then you might remember that very difficult to experience enough clarity of mind to really understand much Dhamma too much going on and also a lot of regret, a lot of suffering associated with incomplete sila or the unrestrained behavior without sila. And we need to develop all the factors of the path. We need effort, just effort in itself, you know, right effort, samawayama is what it is what it says it's effort 
and we tend towards apathy as human beings because of the nature of this realm. It's a sensual realm. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, a body. That makes us apathetic towards right effort in the sense we tend to just follow sense objects. We like, we don't like, we react. We chase things, we run away from things. We want things, we want to get rid of things and so on. Every day that's going on and the actual result is that we, we become apathetic towards Dhamma. This is why right effort is a part of the path, a vital part of the path. Right effort is the effort to abandon unwholesome, unskillful dhammas that have arisen and the effort to prevent unskillful, unwholesome dhammas from arising and the effort to bring up, bring into existence wholesome dhammas, skillful dhammas and the effort to maintain and develop those wholesome dhammas. So this is the path, this is one of the sort of the key qualities of the path is this developing the wholesome and abandoning the unwholesome. You see the Buddha's teachings or all the teachings of our teachers are based around this sort of principle And you can see all of Ajahn Chah's teaching, what we call Ajahn Chah's tradition or style of practice is based, is based around this. And this year we're, celebrating, well, we're commemorating 20 years since his passing away, his death. So it's a good time to reflect on his legacy or what we've inherited from his teachings. We have the books and tapes, which are all now translated and available. We're very fortunate. But perhaps even more than that is the living Sangha and living tradition of Ajahn Chah, which is in, you know, embodied in, in the living Sangha and monasteries, places where that Sangha practices and leads and teaches the lay community around the world, around Thailand and around the world. Sometimes other teachers say, you want to see Ajahn Chah, well, look at his Sangha, look at his monasteries and how they practice. And 20 years on, there's still some enduring qualities and aspects of this practice. You know, there's still ways of practice that we uphold that haven't changed since the time of Ajahn Chah and indeed before him he inherited his practices from teachers such as Ajahn Man, Lumpur Ginnari, Lumpur Tongrat and then back all the way back all the monks, practitioners back to the time of the Buddha. 
So a monastery such as this is a place that's dedicated to putting into practice the teachings that we have inherited particularly with, you might say, with particular reference or particularly from Ajahn Chah. So we're familiar with this, what we say, this style of practice based on the Vinaya, keeping the Vinaya, the Patimoka, and the greater Vinaya, all the other practices you find in the uh, Vibhanga, in the Vinaya, Pitika, the scriptures, upholding them. Upajayawata, Acharyawata, the duties of a disciple towards a pre preceptor or an Acharya, the duties of a Upajaya towards a disciple, of, a of a ch an Acharya towards a disciple, and duties towards lodgings and visiting monks and so on. A whole wide range of duties and rules and practices based on the Vinaya. This is what Ajahn Chah taught. It's very clear evidence. Everyone remembers how he taught, and in his own teachings, which are still available, he talks about that, emphasizes that. So there's not much doubt about that, especially in the minds of the older generation of monks practice with him. We have all the externals, the way we set up the monastery. You have an emphasis of seclusion. You have your own place, usually a kuti in the forest, your own place to practice quietly, to develop meditation in your personal time with fairly few possessions. You're learning to be one who has fewness of wishes, to live fairly simply frugally, economically. We also have group practices. We have a hall, so we have a place where we come together for group meditations, which are always considered compulsory. We have chanting, and we have teachings, uh, sometimes training in Vinaya and so on. We have periods of chores and work which again, group periods where everyone has to come and attend. These are not things that any one particular monk or person has thought out there, something that is very common throughout what you call the forest tradition in Thailand, but our particular tradition based on Ajahn Chah and his lineage, this is very clear, this is how we practice. And it's natural in the beginning we might doubt about it. What's the point of it? Because it'll bring out reactions. And sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do and so on. Ways of behavior we're not familiar with or not used to or just don't like. In ways of showing respect to seniors, people who are more senior in the community than us. Listening to others, being humble, forgiving others when we, we are not happy with them and so on. Many, many different practices, ways of behavior, routines, duties, and so on, 
often brings up doubt, brings up reactions, I like this and I don't like that and so on. But we have to be careful not to become like the fish in the pond and just just because we haven't yet seen the value of it, just dismiss it or in a kind of can't be true, not worth it, don't care about it kind of way. We have to have some trust in the wisdom of Ajahn Chah having encouraged this way of practice and then many other teachers, practitioners who have realized the Dhamma through this way you know, they've proven that it works and encouraged us here and in other monasteries to practice in this way. We have to have some trust in that, except, well, in the beginning I'm coming from a point of what is my background? Well, it's avijja, dhanha, upatana. We all have some barami, we all have some intelligence and some good qualities, but it's not yet perfected and refined and developed so we have to accept that but not to just reject the whole practice just because we don't yet see the value of it we have to give it some time and some effort and commitment otherwise we just become the fish in the pond rejecting everything just because they can't work it out can't possibly believe it's true All of the practice that Ajahn Chah passed down to us and that we uphold is all coming back to one thing. It's just coming back to the heart, the mind, the jitta. Even though you're training sometimes physically in your actions and your speech as well, it's all pointing back to the mind, the origin of everything. The mind your intentions, your mental formations, your moods, your states of mind. This is what we're really learning to focus on and to understand better what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. To bring up the wholesome and to abandon the unwholesome. Where do you do that? You do that in the mind. But you also use the external training to help do that, to achieve that. So we don't just drop everything and say it doesn't matter. That would be a bit risky when we're so new to the practice. Like throwing, crossing the desert and you throw away the map from day one because you're not sure that it's really worth it. You just want to follow your own instincts or your, your own ideas, your own thoughts on where you should go. It would be very risky. You might end up starving to death or drying and becoming dehydrated or just getting lost. You have to use the map to cross the desert. So we have to use the Eightfold Path and the way of training and have a bit of trust that it, if it's been valuable so far and we've seen some even modest or just very slight success, a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more wiser than before, well that's a a clue or a pointer that it's going to go taking you in the right direction. Then what you have to do is keep practicing. 
Like the man who came to Ajahn Chah and sort of complained, oh, this practice seems so deep and profound. It's like trying to get water out of the ground. You know the water is down there, but you reach down and it's just too far. Can't get it out, can't pull it out and make use of it. If water is too far down, Ajahn Chah quickly said back, no, the problem is not the water is too far down, it's the problem is you're not stretching down far enough. Your, your arm is too short and you're not making enough effort to get down to it. If we're still experiencing suffering and problems and issues in our mind, well, the thing to do then is to look at that and say, mm, where do I need to develop more right effort? Samawayama. What more do I need to abandon? What more do I need to prevent from arising in terms of unwholesome states? What wholesome states do I need to develop? That's stretching down further, that's making your arm longer, practicing right effort. If we just get caught into the doubt or the confusion or just reject things, well that's just giving up, saying well, it's too far down, I'm not going to get any of that water. And we won't be able to benefit from the practice then. The way to stretch your arm is always about developing this ability to know your own mind, develop mindfulness and then wisdom, insight. To keep contemplating things. And Ajahn Chah, another kind of essential teaching, he said, well, in the middle of all this practice you're doing, you just learn to keep the mind in the middle. Whether standing, walking, sitting, lying down, whatever posture, whatever activity, whatever time of day or night, learn to keep your mind in the middle. Being in that place where you're not falling into liking or disliking, not reacting to things, not getting excited and infatuated and caught up in things, not getting angry or upset about things, just keeping the mind in the middle in developing that quality of equanimity. And obviously to do that, to achieve that, one needs to keep bringing attention back to the mind itself, mindfulness. Keep bringing up mindfulness and wisdom. The way we develop wisdom is developing sampajanya, clear comprehension, clear understanding of, of the mind, of the body, of what we're doing, what's happening at any moment what's going on in the mind, what activity we're doing and so on. And then wisely reflecting. The sati, sampajanya, panya. He said these are like three friends who bring the mind to that point where it's just in the middle, cool, equanimous. Whatever's going on internally, externally, whatever your day is like, you having a good day, a bad day, whatever the conditions are, you're having a lot of internal moods and confusion or your mind is peaceful you're having a lot of externally everything is going very nicely and well or having a lot of problems whatever you use these three friends sati, sampajanya and panya to bring the mind to equanimity within the middle of it you keep the mind in the middle 
He said, if you go to one extreme, you go to the extreme of always trying to distract yourself, follow desires, get what you want, try and get different kinds of happiness and satisfaction through following desire all the time. Well, that's the extreme of karma, sukhali, karma, yoga, sensual indulgence. And it's bound to be, to lead to disappointment and suffering. Because the nature of sense desire is it's never satisfied. You get one thing, the mind immediately drops that, finds it unsatisfying and moves on to the next thing. And even the suffering of wanting and desiring actually increases the disturbance to the mind if you don't do anything about it. The other extreme is rejecting everything fighting everything, trying to get rid of everything that you don't like and don't want. Every experience, every problem, every person, everything that you don't like, trying to get rid of it, fight it, get it, get it out of your life, out of your experience. And that's Atakilamatani Yoga, the painful way, always creating pain and suffering out of your experience and and following experience that leads to pain and suffering. Either way is, is not going to lead to a peaceful mind. Ajahn Chak always pointed out the way you go in the practice is back to this place in the middle, neither indulging in pleasure nor pain, liking, disliking, happiness, suffering, all the extremes of this realm of human existence and not indulging anything which bringing the mind back to mindfulness clear comprehension and wisdom in the middle training in that whether you're standing walking sitting lying down so that means any posture any activity any time of day you're on your own in your kuti you're in a group meeting you're eating you're doing chores you're going here going there whatever your mind goes with you and this, these qualities are uh, the qualities of right effort. What wholesome dhammas are we to develop? Well, it's sati, sampajanya, panya. The opposite is what we're abandoning. You know, states of no mindfulness, fuzziness, confusion, drowsiness, distraction, and so on. States of lack of understanding of lack of wisdom, lack of insight into what's going on, not reflecting on things, just following moods and indulging in moods, liking, disliking. Those are the things to be abandoned. Ajahn Shao say, if you just practice this practice, learning to keep your mind in the middle, whatever the conditions, there are conditions to your liking or conditions that you don't like. But if you just learn to keep cool, calm, equanimous with mindfulness in the middle, he said within five years you'll be enlightened. Just what level of enlightenment or level of wisdom and insight and so on, well, it just depends on the person I guess. But he wouldn't have said that if it didn't have some deeper, profound meaning. 
would be willing to give up to the practice means willing to give up the attachment to pleasure and pain. It doesn't mean to say we'll be able to avoid pleasure and pain. We certainly can't. There's always pleasure and pain around in our lives because of the nature of our five senses. So it's not just to avoid everything, run away or try and hide or get rid of pleasure and pain. It's just to develop the qualities that deal with pleasure and pain skillfully. To know the dangers of it, not to indulge in pleasure or pleasure seeking to the point where we lose our mindfulness and become attached according to craving. Not to indulge in pain or react to pain where we become attached to that either. Just this simple instruction is a, it's a vehicle, like a raft. If they compare the Dhamma practice, the Eightfold Path, to a raft that takes you across the ocean of samsara. Well, the raft is this practice of mindfulness, clear comprehension and wisdom. That's what gives you this smooth ride through the ocean of samsara to Nibbana, the island on the other side. So any time, any moment you practice right effort and you put the effort into establishing mindfulness, clarity, knowing, knowing this mind in the present moment, using meditation object, using buddho, using the breath, using a reflection on a wholesome dhamma, loving kindness or impermanence or so on. Any time you establish mindfulness, clear comprehension and insight, and it's right effort, and that can be done any time, whether you're about to go to sleep at night, you're waking up in the morning, you're in the middle of the day, you're on your own, you're with others. That's the practice. Often in the beginning of our practice also we tend to sort of, when others are around, we try to practice a bit harder or put more effort in. And when we're on our own, we often feel kind of, doesn't matter. Many practitioners complain of that kind of experience. We're on their own, just become apathetic again, tend to let the mind wander and maybe go to more unskillful states, unskillful behavior, body, speech or mind. So another clue to the path of good practice that, is that Ajahn Chah gave us is, well, try and make your mind even, whether you're on your own or whether you're in a group or with other people, whether you're with a teacher or not, whether you're with other monks or not, try and make your mind even, meaning your, your right effort even at all times, all postures, all situations. So you're going transcending the sort of, I'm on my own now, I can just let it all go, nobody will know, nobody will see. Obviously we might do that from time to time, but it's also another risky path to take because you can end up indulging to the point where you become, your unwholesome dhammas, your kilesas are increasing, taking over your mind, taking over your behavior. You can make karma and so on. It's a risky path to follow. Better to try and develop right effort at all times. So, As Ajahn Chah said, again, even if you're on your own and you do something, you know it, you see it, 
It's not like you've never, you're, you're on your own and nobody sees it, you see it. So if you know, you're tempted to do something that's against the rules or that is obviously a, an unwholesome action of body, speech and mind, you're knowing it. Your mind is recording that act. It's making an impression on your mind. So it, this is the way he encouraged to train, to be thorough, to be diligent, to be bringing up effort in all aspects of this practice, this training. First of all, just taking on trust that it works and that it will lead to something. But as you practice, hopefully you gain your own insight, your own confidence that yeah, it does work. Maybe not as fast or as quick as I want. We always want quick results and we want the quick way to Nibbana, quick way to enlightenment. So maybe it's not as quick as you want. But you should be able to see it does lead in the right direction. It's not a waste of effort. It's not a waste of time. The alternative is just to stay as a fish, always doubting, never wishing to know anything more than what you know already. You know, Sangsara is like an ocean, the Buddha said. It's like, another way he described it, it's the floods, the ogre. The flood of sensuality, the flood of Sangsara. It's just completely, when, when one who doesn't practice, doesn't make any right effort to bring up mindfulness or wisdom, they're just like caught in a flood. You have this water overwhelming your person, your possessions, the world around you completely swamped and flooded and you're stuck in that there's no way out unless you practice if you're stuck in sangsara it's not like it's all good and endless suffering and problems you want an end to that the only way to go is to get out of the flood get out of sangsara through the practice However long it takes, doesn't matter. Little by little, if you're going in the right direction, that's all that counts, all that matters. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. <laughs>